Have you ever been so mad? Okay, let me start again. You don't need to raise your hand on this one. <laughs> Have you ever been so mad about something, only find out that you're the problem? That ever happened to you? It's never happened to you? Wow. It has to me. It wasn't the people around you only. It was them and you or you alone. See, the Bible doesn't. Lots of people, lots of people begin to look at the Bible and start hoping that it's going to justify the behaviors, like they're going to find some behavior in there that they can get away with. Sort of like money falling into your lap. How do I get to keep this, right? But the Bible doesn't justify human behavior. It justifies God's actions in light of human behavior. It's quite a different thing to think about. Today, as you know, I just want to say this. The problem with being a human isn't that Adam and Eve did something or that Cain did something or that Noah did something or Lamech or the laundry list goes on. The problem isn't that. The problem is humans not living in their image of God role and representative well. That's actually most of the problem with stuff. Let's read the text, okay? One of the more difficult texts this morning, this is on page 14 of your Bible, Noah and Noah's sons. Some of you I know are just super excited about how I'm going to handle this, so I'm going to do this. This is a 9.18. The sons of Noah came out of the boat with their father, Shem. Shem, by the way, have you ever wondered where the term anti-Semite comes from? It's anti-Shemite. Semite. Shem. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham is the father of Canaan. From these three sons of Noah came all the people who now populate the earth. In I want to say that we would say, scientifically, how's that possible? That's a very 21st century sort of question. But I want you to know that what they're saying is that everybody on earth is related and cousins. They're not foreigners. They're cut, right? That's quite a different sort of what, what, how do we interact with all of the world? Well, they're all cousins. It's quite a different understanding of how to do that rather than, well, they come from over there and they're not our people. Do you, do you see the... Sometimes I come to the Bible asking a certain question and I don't get the right answer because I'm not in the right spot for the question I'm asking. But in this case, this is one of those things. After the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground. Or in other words, just very specifically, he was an Adama, an Adam of the soil, a person of the ground. Does that sound familiar? If I start to say he's, Adam, he's an Adama, he's an Adam of the soil, where God takes the soil and forms 
Noah began to cultivate the ground, and one day he planted a vineyard, and he planted a vineyard. Um, just on the science stuff, just so you know, you don't plant a vineyard and have wine the next day. You know that, right? It takes a while. Vineyards are signs of cultivation and time. One day, he drank some wine he had made. He became drunk and lay naked inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, keeps coming back to this, saw that his father was naked and went outside and told his brothers. Then Shem and Japheth took a robe and held it over their shoulders and backed into the tent to cover their father. As they did this, they looked the other way so they would not see him naked. When Noah awoke from his stupor, he learned what Ham, his youngest son, had done, and then he cursed Canaan, the son of Ham. May Canaan be cursed. May he be the lowest of the servants of his relatives. Then Noah said, May the Lord bless the God of Shem and be blessed, and may Canaan be his servant. May God expand the territory of Japheth, and may Japheth share in the prosperity of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Noah lived another 350 years after the great flood, and he lived 950 years and then died. That's the end of the story. Sort of. It's sort of the end of the story. I want to say that there's something that I find a lot of people try to do, and one of my professors at seminary used to say that we try to use the Bible non-biblically all over the place. You know, like, like we could say, here's an outlandish example. We could say, well, Samson got to do all those things. I should be able to even though the Bible really judged Samson for some of the things he did. Right? But we don't get to take permission from things that the Bible's speaking about as examples of why you shouldn't do those things. You go, but a Bible approved. It's in the Bible. I get to. Another thing that goes beyond this is the text doesn't really elaborate on one thing here. And, and by the way, Hebrew narratives don't elaborate and speak in euphemisms around sexuality issues and things like that. It just does. I don't know how else to say this. You know, if you're familiar with the Ruth and Boaz story in Ruth where she goes to the, to the threshing floor and, and her mother says to uncover his legs, as our Bibles would say, probably not what's going on. Probably a euphemism for what she's been asked to do. In the same way that when Abraham takes his servant to send his servant to go find a son for his son, or a wife for his son, it says that he put his hand under his thigh and made a promise. But that's not where the future of Abraham was settled. It's a euphemism for what he was actually holding in his hand. I need to say this because we often think Esther wins a beauty pageant. Have you read the text? That is not what's going on there. And it's much darker because the Bible doesn't, it speaks euphemistically, but it doesn't apologize for the world we live in. It says, this is the world we live in. I need to say that. 
I didn't break anybody's heart by saying that Esther wasn't a beauty pageant, right? You've read the text? Esther, the king in Esther says, bring all the young maidens and I'm going to sleep with each one of them and pick the one I want. That's not a beauty pageant, right? There's no talent competition going on on the side of that. It's a negative, nasty situation. But the Bible doesn't exactly um, elaborate on what Ham's sin is. Is it that he saw his dad naked? Or is it that he mocked his dad to his brothers? Or is there something wholly more unsavory going on there that the Bible's just not telling us? So here's the question I just want to say. The Bible doesn't say, and we don't get to pick. Right? When the Bible doesn't say, we don't get to make up new answers. <laughs> I just want to make sure you know that. But we should begin to recognize, right? I've been talking in Genesis about the pattern of the story and all of this stuff. Can you see the pattern of the Noah story that, that Noah plants a place where things grow? It's kind of a garden. And then there's a fruit from some growing thing that he misuses and takes in the wrong way. Does this begin to sound a little bit like Eden, maybe? Let's do this more. A man of the soil, fruit misused, naked, exposed, judgment and covering. Can you see the pattern? There's the, there's the Genesis. There's the Garden of Eden, right? Let's begin again. How many of us as human beings think that the problem with our current situation is our situation? And if we could just get out of that situation, we could get into a different situation. It would be perfect. It would be utopia. No? We don't think that? Why do we not think that? Because humans do think that deep down, maybe without thinking it through, they think it. Don't you? If I could just, I hate my job. If I could just get a better job, working would be fun. I hate to tell you this. When you have a job, this is not news to many of you, but they're paying you to take advantage of you. <laughs> That's why you get a paycheck, because <laughs> they're going to take advantage of you. And, and my experience with doing good work is the reward for good work isn't more money, it's more work. I, I just want to make sure we do this. Okay, so the first thing is, is the Bible doesn't exactly elaborate why Ham is then not cursed, but his son is cursed. Now, here's a weird oddity in the text. Ham does something, and his youngest son gets cursed. Now, if I read my commentaries, I want you to know that I've read my commentaries on this, and some say that Noah didn't feel like he could curse Ham because God had just blessed him to be fruitful and multiply, and you can't undo the blessing that God did, so now you have to curse somebody else. That sounds weird and made up to me. I don't know how else to say that. Um, some say that Ham is the youngest son, and so Canaan is his youngest son, so the boomerang sort of thing. No, weird and made up to me, right? I, I just want you to know that I'm listening to it. I'm hearing the story. 
If you take a Bible as literature class at one of our major universities, they'll tell you that Canaan, the curse of Canaan is put here because they were later subjugated Canaan and they needed a good reason to be able to justify that. Again, I'm not here to tell you which one it is. That's extra biblical thinking. That's an argument from silence. There is nothing there for this. What I will tell you is that if I follow the house of Ham through the Bible, it's pretty clear the cursing that goes to Canaan isn't just on Canaan, but on the whole family in sort of one of these things. And I want to talk to you a little bit about a little conjecture that I have about generational curses. You ever heard of a generational curse? You ever heard how that happens? That, that, so the very humanistic style of understanding that is this, that great-grandpa Ham beat his wife, and so his kids all beat their wives, and their kids all beat their wives, and their kids, because they were all taught that. Now, that's a very humanistic understanding of generational cursing. Now, if that is how generational cursing happens, then it it could be that there's something in Ham's family that his son is the living example of, and that could be it. But it's still an argument from silence. The Bible doesn't say it. But, but have we seen generational cursings in our families and around us and things like that? Have we seen that? How do you break those? Well, there's, there's two ways to break them that I know of. And they both involve God doing something magnificent in the middle of a terrible situation, which pretty much is how living on earth is. God doing something in the midst of a terrible situation. So I want to say this. The first way is is that God separates somebody from a family so they don't learn the lesson, and then they don't have it. I don't know how else to say that. The other one is, is that God fills somebody in that pattern with this spirit, and then they fight and make choices to stand against the generational pattern. And man, I'm telling you, I'm not sure which one of those is easier or harder. Do you understand what I'm saying? That if, you're, if your family has a pattern and you're going to stand against it, that's tough. Maybe not harder than being an orphan or something like that. But both of those sorts of things, that's kind of how that happens. I don't know. I, I don't think that I've ever seen anybody successfully break one of those patterns without God's super imposing grace and mercy into the pattern. I'd be willing to see it. I just haven't. So that leads me to believe that it takes God to interrupt those things. In the same way, on a much smaller scale, of how we do New Year's resolutions. That getting a New Year's resolution actually done really kind of involves interruption by God and mercy, if that thing is a good thing. Okay, so we're back into this doesn't explain the familiar curse habit. 
And we shouldn't actually be choosing between this, but I only throw this in because as I look through the pattern of Ham and the family of Ham and Canaan, I see the same thing cropping up over and over again down the line, which led me to believe into this sort of cul-de-sac of generational curses. Okay? But the Bible itself doesn't say, oh, that's a generational curse starting. Does it? It doesn't. It's just weird. The Bible does tell us all sorts of things about the situation, though, and about how we need to overhaul and not look at just our situation and go, if we could just change our situation, we could be better. The problem here is that humans are involved and not following God's pattern of the image bearers in his society and not ruling over or in Cult in, in the world the way that God wants his image to rule. I'm not saying that humans should go rule and go, God told me to rule, because that's not how he said to rule. And you can look at all of the, all of the kings in the Israel history that they were told to be servants. And so when Jesus says, if you want to be first, you've got to be last, and, and if you understand what I just did for you washing your feet, then that's the lowliest servant job, and I, your king, just did that. But that's the proper placement of the image of God ruling, if you will. But because we don't sit in that spot, things don't go right. And so it doesn't matter how many times we begin again, 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 that we just start over. We could have a new Eden and they'd put us there and the problem would still be us. I, don't, I, I hope I'm not being super offensive to you, but just actually speaking about the way it is and maybe this is your experience. There's an old uh, proverb that goes like this. There's a family, two families are moving to a town. And when they get to the town, they meet somebody from the town. They say, what are people like here? And the guy says, well, what are they like where you were from? And the first family says, well, they were mean and combative and argumentative, and they stole stuff from us. And he goes, just move right along. That's all you'll find here. <laughs> the second family comes to the same guy, and they ask the same question. What are people like here? And he says, what were they like where you were from? And they said, oh, they were so nice. They were great neighbors and all that. Yes, come on in. That's what you'll find here. The parable isn't about what the community you're moving to or the situation you're moving to is like. The parable is about who you are and how you affect the culture around you. So what's the takeaway from this situation, right? We're, we're, we're doing this. We're studying Genesis to hear the pattern that God's setting for his world. And to also understand, I, I need you to know this, that, that I, I guess there's no other way to say this. Dave continues to need a Savior. I've met a Savior. I've loved, I love my Savior. I still need him. And I'll need him just as much tomorrow as I did three days ago or 17 years ago or when I was 23 and, and didn't know him. But our situation is like this. There are many priests under the old system. Do you understand? So I'm reading from Hebrews 7. 
This is from our Tuesday night thing, and I, I was not originally going to talk about this, but there were many priests in the old system, and a priest is a representative between God and the people. Which, by the way, if you have him in your heart, you're one. You are a priest. But the priests of the old system had this problem, okay? For death, keep preventing them from fulfilling their office. And so every time we made a sacrifice for somebody in the old system, and we said, we're going to intercede for you, that intercession died with us. And then the, inter- the person we interceded for didn't have an intercessor. That's the old system. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save. Now, I don't like that translation so lovely. This is one of those spots. I'm so glad they put an asterisk on it. It really means he is able to save completely. Completely permanent, unchanging. It doesn't go away. You can't wear it out. All of that stuff. Should I stack some more adjectives on there? It's permanent, unchanging. It's ubiquitous. I just keep throwing them on here. It all means he gets the job done and he's not off the job to do it. He's on the job. Yes, ma'am. Canaan. Cursed, yeah. Well, well, there is that aspect of that, but, but that isn't in the text either as to why he did it. it. Like it didn't say Noah picked on Canaan, so Ham would be really unhappy. It just doesn't say any of that. I completely agree. That's in the commentaries too. And it's true that when your kids suffer, you suffer. And when your kids suffer for something you did, it's worse. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not doubting that at all. It's just not in the text. That's correct. That's why I was bringing it up. I was bringing up all those things so that we wouldn't, so we would hear what the judicial sort of courts would decide between and go, oh, they're deciding on no information whatsoever. Okay, here we are. A Lord. So don't get mad at the Bible if I come back to this, don't get mad at the Bible for not answering the questions you ask. Maybe pay attention to it to, to find out what it's actually saying, which is quite different. I, I often am sort of unhappy the Bible doesn't answer the question that m- the way my 21st century scientific sort of artistic mind asks. And yes, I do have a sort of scientific artistic mind, and I know that that's a paradigmatic problem. <laughs> But the Bible sort of talks about this culture, and it wants you to know, and it wants you to know just oh so completely that you need a Savior, and that you, you can't, won't, haven't yet been able to affect your situation and live at peace without his intervention. Even Noah, the new Adam, the man of the soil, can't do it in a brand new world. Because that's what he got. 
But the problem remains. The problem remains that we need a Savior and not to trust only in ourselves, but to trust in Him. And our salvation lies there, not in a completely different situation just because we want it. Now, I know some of you are asking me this question about stuff, right? What happens when you're in a horrible situation like the pre-Noah world where everything was in, was in ruination and God said, if that's what you want, I'll let you have it. Is there rescue from that situation? Yes. His name is Jesus. Even if they didn't know his name is Jesus, in Genesis, his name was still Jesus. What happens when you go to the new place? Hopefully, in Christ, we learn the lessons and adjust. We don't want to be in a world where we just keep recreating towers of Babel over and over again. We leave the one that fell down and then make another one. That's a bad spot, too. But the Bible says, if we begin again, we get this reset button, we start to understand who the Lord is, that the, and we stop looking to the Bible for our justification, but the one who justifies, and we learn about him. That's the stuff we need to learn right now. I'm over. It's time to pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for today. Thank you for your love. Move in us, guide us, strengthen us. Be a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path that we might walk on your paths and not just the ones we're used to. In your precious name, amen.